Help us never to forget how much we need you. The very fact that we can speak a word or think a thought or that we even draw breath this morning is because of your grace. It is undeserved. We need you. We need you now to remove all the distractions and things that vie for our attention and affection. Remove it this morning. Help us to be captivated by your word and specifically this morning by your story. The grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation. We pray that we would be good listeners to your word this morning. That we would truly believe it as the word of God. And if this is the word of God, then we must believe it. And it is good that we believe it. Lord, I pray that you would keep my lips from error. And should I err in any way, may it be so far removed from their minds. May only the truth of God's word remain. Because that is sufficient. Help us now to honor you in our listening And may we go away from this place today, greater worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, by the way, my name is Josh Brown. I'm our uh, director of Young Family Ministries here at Riverbend. uh, And I'm grateful to have this time in the Word today. To start, I would like to mention a French philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. You may have heard of him before. He is famous for popularizing a way of thinking called existentialism. Some main ideas of existentialism are this, and they may be on the screen behind me as well. You were created as a, what they would say, a tabula rasa, a blank slate with no pre-existing meaning or purpose. In fact, you as the blank slate have a job to discover your meaning and purpose for your life in a world in which there is no objective meaning or purpose. This is what they refer to as the absurd. And that is this, the pursuit of finding answers in an answerless world or finding meaning out of meaninglessness. There's a phrase that best embodies this way of thinking, and they say, existence precedes essence. What that means is you exist before you have any real meaning or purpose. It is your job to be the master of your own destiny. You are the main character in your story, and everything revolves around you. There is no bigger purpose or meaning outside of you. This way of thinking is anti-God. And I hope you see that clearly. However, due to our sinfulness and our natural pride and arrogance, we often operate under the belief that we are central figures in this universe, that the world revolves around me. This way of thinking has led to and still leads to great pain, sin, suffering, misery, and hopelessness, and it is not the way God made us. The only way to combat that idea and natural tendency in our hearts is by looking at the scriptures. God's word tells us our purpose and meaning. It tells us whose story this is, and that we have a beginning and an end meant for God. 
Do you want to know your purpose and meaning in this life? I hope you do. Then hear today from the word of the living God. And I would propose this, that if we are going to accurately hear God's message from his word, you must look at scripture in context. You've heard that phrase before, right? But there are two types of in context. There's the immediate context, which is when you look at a passage, it's the immediate verses before or after that make its immediate context, its immediate surroundings. But there is also the context at large. The context at large is this, the story or the grand narrative of the Bible. Today's message is entitled this, this is God's story and you are in it. You should read the Bible as a story. This book, which is a collection of many individual books, is not dull or complex. It is exciting. It conveys the greatest story ever told. Indeed, it has all elements of a story, right? You have characters, you have an introduction, you have a setting, you have a plot, you have conflict, you have resolution, and a good ending. Spoiler, this story is all about Jesus. It's important that we start there because it's not about you. Now, you play a part. You're in this story, but it's not about you. You say, well, yeah, the New Testament is about Jesus, but isn't the Old Testament all about God the Father and not really about Jesus? Jesus says in John 5, 39, when speaking of the law and the prophets, he says, it is these that testify about me. Luke 24, 25 through 27 says this. Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish men and slow, to, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Philippians 2 speaks of him humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1 says this, Jesus is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This is a story about Jesus. The Bible tells the greatest story. This is no ordinary story. It could not be crafted by man. Every single book from Genesis to Revelation fits together to carry this narrative with the goal of revealing Jesus Christ. And I know you may know aspects of this story or a lot of this story, but I think it would do us well to maybe empty our minds for a second and pretend like you don't know the full story. And it is our goal today, and it may be slightly ambitious, so bear with me. I want us to start from Genesis 1 and see this narrative all the way through to Revelation 22. I want you to see this, so strap in for the world's greatest story ever told. Let's start with the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy Genesis 1.1, I want you to open your Bibles to see this so that you do not just believe me, but see it from the word of God. These first five words of Genesis 1.1 tell us so much. This is the beginning of the story and it starts like this. In the beginning, God created. 
In the beginning, God created this. These five words tell us so much. Our world, everything we know and experience and see was created by one who has no beginning. In the beginning, there was God. Consider that for a moment. God has always been and always will be. That is mind-blowing. But one of the reasons why this matters is because if God exists and always has, and if he so chose to create, which he didn't have to, but he did, if he is the creator, then that rules out existentialism right away. If we have a creator, we don't seek to find our purpose and meaning. It's been determined for us. We are created with a purpose. The Bible starts with the main character, God. In the beginning, God. And so that means from here on out, from Genesis 1, we are about to see the unfolding of his story. In Genesis, we see an intro to God, of course, his creation, the origins of earth. God creates mankind in his image. That is a special and unique aspect of mankind. We are the pinnacle of God's creation because he so chose to make us in his image. We are given dominion and able to rule over the earth. God then provides a wife. Eve to Adam because it was not good for man to be alone. But he calls the rest of his creation good and he rests on the seventh day. The command is given to Adam and Eve. You can enjoy perfect fellowship with God in the garden, but you must not do this one thing. They were given this command not to eat of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, didn't take very long before they disobeyed. This command is disobeyed. Man sins and is kicked out of the garden. And this is what happens in Genesis 3, verse 24. It says this, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This was to show when man sinned, the way to life was cut off. You aren't getting back. There is no hope. Despite your efforts to take on a cherubim and a flaming sword, you will not get through. Consider this for a moment. This could have been a nice short story where the story just ends there. He gave man a chance. Man spurned God, disobeyed, was kicked out, and the story could have ended, and it would have been absolutely right and just if it ended right there. but we have other chapters after Genesis 3. And you are about to see this grand story of redemption unfold. Fellowship with God had been lost in the garden because of sin. But very soon in Genesis 3, of course, we see the very gospel in seed form. As it is foretold of one who would crush the serpent's head and of course, that was veiled in shadows, but it pointed to the gospel from a distance. As we go on in Genesis, mankind's sin abounds and a flood is sent to wipe them off the face of the earth. But God preserves a remnant. God saves those people from the judgment of his wrath via the ark, which is meant to point you to something greater. God makes a promise with Noah to never do it again. And shortly thereafter, he makes another promise, or what the Bible would call a covenant. He makes this with Abraham. This is an everlasting covenant with descendants as numerable as the stars. They are given land and slavery, and Egypt is even foretold. 
But all the while in this promise, there's a promised seed, a promised one in this covenant to Abraham, which says this in Genesis 12, in you, Abraham, meaning in your offspring, in your seed, all the nations and the families of the earth will be blessed. Points to Christ to come, of course. You remember, of course, Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and how they find themselves after that in Egypt for 400 years as it was foretold. And though Israel had begun to forget about God, Yahweh had not forgot them. God raises up Moses. Indeed, he protects him, reveals himself to Moses, and uses him to bring his people out of Egypt. Once again, much like the ark, we have a vivid display of God saving his people. The Passover is implemented. As you know, God preserves his people from a plague that would take the firstborn, symbolizing and pointing to a greater Passover to come. He parts the Red Sea. Moses is given the law of God. This is known as the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. And it had these stipulations that said this, you will have blessings if you obey. But if you do not, you will be cursed. The Old Covenant had to be kept perfectly. Indeed, they could not keep it. A sacrificial system was implemented for various types of sin and a day of atonement where one day per year the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies to pay for and atone for sins. But Israel could never keep the law, so these sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. Day after day, year after year, blood being spilled, but never able to accomplish forgiveness of sins And as Pastor Scott has been teaching on Wednesday nights, you know this well, they were told of a promised land that would be theirs. They are on the cusp of it. And when the spies go in, 10 of the 12 come back and say, these people are too big for God. And they sow seeds of unbelief amongst the people. And the people turn against God. This sin, therefore, prolongs entrance into the promised land. And a new leader of Israel is appointed. Moses dies and Joshua comes in. All the while in the Pentateuch, the detailed discussion of the law was meant to point to this. God demands holiness. And not just partial holiness, complete holiness. In the law, we learn about the desperate need for a lawkeeper. We need a perfect sacrifice for sins. We need a better priest. We need a better sacrifice. We need atonement. We get to Joshua, and Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. They are given success everywhere they go. But they did not fully obey, did they? That would come back to bite them later. Tribes are given portions of their lands. The people eventually, despite having seen all of what God had done for them, they turn to idols and judges are appointed at various times to rescue Israel. And despite their efforts, the book of Judges ends with this refrain. There was no king of Israel in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The story of Ruth comes along to show us the line of Christ that would come. Boaz even is seen as a picture of Christ. We get to 1 Samuel through Esther, this section of scripture. Israel is granted their wish of a king. And who do they pick? Saul. Does Saul solve any of their problems? No. In fact, he leads them into greater sin such that David is chosen to replace him. David, God's anointed. God enters into covenant with David and he makes this promise to David. This covenant with him says, saying this, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. But here's the problem. David died, right? This wasn't meant to talk about David. It was pointing to someone greater. 
Israel's history is then put on display as kings raise up, many of which are wicked. There's captivity involved because of their sin. The temple is built, the temple is destroyed, but God graciously preserves them because he made a promise that the Messiah would come from the Jews. We get into Job through the Song of Solomon. These are wisdom literature recorded Praises are lifted to God. Job shows us that God is sovereign and we are in awe of the almighty God. Suffering, even in the midst of this story, points to the hope and trust we have in God. Psalms provides us ample reason to worship as we are given a real hymn book to sing to our God. And at many places throughout Psalms, the Messiah is foretold. Someone is coming. Someone is coming to take away sins. Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom is linked to God himself. Ecclesiastes shows us the meaninglessness of this world apart from God, everything under the sun. Song of Solomon highlights even the beauty of God's marriage design as foreshadowing one day even the marriage of the king of kings and his bride, the church. Then we get to the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. These are called major and minor prophets, not because some had a higher rank than others, but because some are just written um, in more words than others. And these speak to Israel even after all their sin. These prophets come, some before Israel is exiled. Some of these prophets come to Israel and they say, stop what you are doing if you continue, you will be destroyed. God will take you into a foreign land. They will take you captive. Stop. They did not listen, and therefore they were taken captive. There were some prophets that were raised up in the midst of the captivity that said, look at what your sin has got you into. Look at where we are, but do not forget for a moment that God has said he will have us back if we just return. And these prophets are exhorting them to return. And then beyond that, even after God raises them out of captivity, there are the prophets that come after and say, have we not learned? Do we not see what rebellion against our God will do? Do not do it again. And of course, I'm paraphrasing, but these are the primary themes of their messages, all the while in the pre-exile and the during-exile and the post-exile pointing to someone to come. Over the course of all these prophets, of course, the temple is destroyed and the temple is even rebuilt. It's rebuilt as a shell of itself. The Jews were taken far away, but then they return. And in 432 BC, we see Malachi as a prophet. And after Malachi, we experience and see 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence and waiting. All the while, the whole Old Testament has been speaking of a new covenant. Ezekiel 36 foretold this, says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. This is what they needed all along. A new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. This new covenant is spoken of. In Daniel, we see it prophesied that a son of man, the son of man would come, this promised Messiah, the Savior himself. In Zechariah, he is said to be coming in, riding on a donkey. In Micah, speaks of him being born in Bethlehem. In Malachi, it speaks of one who would prepare the way for the Lord. In Isaiah, it speaks of a virgin birth that this child would be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. He would be preceded by a forerunner. And it says this in Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
In Isaiah 53, you know that passage that speaks of this suffering servant that would come, who would be beaten and spat on and numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. He would suffer for our iniquities, and the Lord would be pleased to crush him. And by this very servant, many would be justified. And all the while these promises have been made, but 400 years of silence and waiting until the Word, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, becomes flesh. John 1 speaks of this Christ, saying this, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, all things were created through him and for him. This Jesus, who's the sustainer of all things, exalted son of God, takes on flesh and is born into this world. And we see on the very night that he is born, we see this from Luke 2. The angel said to them, do not be afraid for I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David that was foretold, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in verse 13 it says, Suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. This Christ that took on flesh was the promised Messiah who had come to save people, not from the Romans, but from their sins. Where the first Adam had failed, the second Adam had come to make things right. To do this, though, he had to live a perfect, spotless, sinless life, and he did to represent mankind, to be the second Adam that would represent us. He had to take on flesh and be a man and be tempted as we were, yet without sin. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. And more importantly, he made hearts alive. He was unjustly charged and brought to the cross where he suffered the brutality of mankind, a physical pain in which cannot be quantified, described, or imagined. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, goes to the cross to die at the hands of sinful men. And that wasn't even the worst. Because he didn't just go to the cross to suffer and die at the hands of man. He came to the cross to suffer the full weight of God's wrath upon sin. This is the only way that the way of life can be made open again. Isaiah 53 was being fulfilled right before the eyes of those Roman soldiers and the onlookers and of Jesus' mother and those who were around. Isaiah 53 says this, But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, that is Jesus, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many for he will bear their wrong doings. God the Father in the anguish of his soul, excuse me, he will see it and will be satisfied, Jesus Christ, to justify the many. And he cried out on that cross. You know it well. He cried out in those final moments, it is finished. The full weight of the wrath of God was satisfied. Christ's offering was made, and his offering was himself, and his offering was complete. But dear friends, you know this well. He could not be held down by the power of death. It says in the scriptures it is impossible for him to be held by its power. Death and the grave could not hold him, so he burst forth three days later to show his triumph. 
his triumph over sin, death, and the great enemy, Satan. Now the payment was accepted and eternal life could be offered to any who believe. The way to life that was cut off was now open. The first Adam and his sin left us cut off from God. The second Adam and his perfect righteousness opens the way. Jesus fulfills the Genesis promise as the serpent crusher. Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant as the one in whom all nations will be blessed. Jesus fulfills the Mosaic covenant who perfectly kept the law on behalf of mankind. Indeed, he was the perfect high priest we long for and the perfect sacrifice that we could never give. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant as Luke says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. He fulfills all of these as he ushers in the new covenant through his atoning work on the cross. And the story isn't done. In Acts, Christ ascends. And it is told that he will return in the same way in which he went up. The church is instituted and spreads fast. In fact, God uses persecution to do it. You remember that when Stephen was martyred and because of that and the intense persecution of the church, they're scattered and the gospel is going forth and the gospel is succeeding. And that should be no surprise because the enemies of God cannot thwart his plan. It is shown to Peter and to the church that salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. It's for all who believe. And though many tried to stop the gospel from expanding, they couldn't. And though Acts ends abruptly, if you read Acts, it doesn't really have a well-defined ending. It's just, you know, Paul's there and this is great and this is where we leave it and it's, there's no real conclusion. And I think part of the reason for that is because it still carries on today. You live in the church age. You are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel is still advancing, is it not? And nobody will stop it. Nobody. And all the while in this church age that we live and in this day, every sinner that is brought near to Christ through faith and saved by the righteousness of Christ, this produces an endless amount of praise in heaven where the saints and the angels just continuously rejoice at God's saving work. From Romans to Jude, we have the epistles to the church. You're given instruction as believers for how you are to live in this world. The gospel is clearly laid out so that you may be able to combat false teaching and those who rail against it lays out instruction for how to be conformed to the image of Christ and to walk in a manner worthy. Yes, these epistles are concerned with our personal walk, these letters, but not just that, they are concerned with how you relate to each other around you and how you relate to the lost world as you make disciples of all nations. There's a heavy emphasis in these letters that this earth is not our home. We belong to someone else, and our home is somewhere else with Christ. This is why Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We get to Revelation, and there are so many details to go through. But suffice it to say, Jesus is coming back. He will return in glory and his second coming will not be mistaken. Because I cannot adequately describe this and I really haven't adequately described anything but I can't adequately describe this. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. I want you to see the end of the story.
You know in school when you have some sort of book or material, the answers are often found in the back of the book. We don't read a Bible without answers. The answers are in the back of the book. What is going to happen? Well, let's read it. Revelation 21, we're going to read intermittently here, so follow along here. Let's go verse 3. We'll start there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. There's a description made of the new Jerusalem, but move on to verse 22 now. I saw no temple in it, that is the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Isn't that fascinating? Before we keep reading, at the very beginning, we see in the Garden of Eden, with fellowship with God, with man, we see the tree of life. The way is cut off, now through Christ. At the very last chapter of the scriptures, we see the tree of life again. Says this, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were, of the, were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his, to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Turn over to the last two verses of this. Oh, I can't do it. We've got to go to verse 14. Sorry. I was going to try to help move things along, but I can't do it. Verse 12, actually. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have a right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty 
come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back to completely judge his enemies, to rescue us completely. The promised serpent crusher, the blesser of nations, the true rescuer from captivity, the Passover lamb, the true manna from heaven, the true Sabbath rest, the great prophet, priest, sacrifice, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He will be victorious and already is. This is why we will cry out forever, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is a beautiful story about Jesus. It is a timeless story that has application for us even today. That is what is so amazing. This isn't just a story that we have to think of in our head. You are in it. Do you see it? You are in it. It is amazing. It is amazing. I have four quick application points. If you are in this room, and you maybe have seen yourself in this story, but you haven't liked what you've seen. Because you know you stand against the Most High God in unbelief. You have read about where your inheritance lies. I encourage you to bow the knee to the King. You are who Scripture has says, said is cut off from the way of life, but it doesn't need to stay that way. Because Jesus Christ came and opened it. There is an open invitation for you now to receive the forgiveness of Christ. Bow the knee to the King of Kings. Have you not seen him today as the light, the way, the truth, and the life? He is good and he desires you to come. You say, well, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure God actually loves me. He loves you so much. He poured out his wrath on his son and he was pleased to do it for you. You may say, well, I don't believe this is God's story. I'm just gonna believe my own thing. Well, the reality is, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. This is what will happen. Your opinion or the opinion of the greatest philosopher in this world cannot change God's unchanging word. And before you say, well, why is he preaching at me? It's not very nice. All of us in this room, sinners who are cut off from life, completely unworthy, undeserving, Yet Christ died for us. I am one of you. We were lost. Now we have been found. We preach Christ to give you hope that you don't have to stay in your sins. We do not want you to face everlasting torment and suffering. Christ has opened a way and he is ready to extend his forgiveness to you if you would just believe. For the believer in this room, you say, what's my application? <laughs> Worship and live for this king. You have a small amount of time on this earth, don't you? Let us truly live 
with that Pauline mindset to live as Christ, to die is gain. Live for this king. He did all of this for you. Could have stopped after Genesis 3, but he didn't. He sent his son to die for you. How much more so should we want to live for him and for his glory? Christ is not just a nice addition to your life, believer. He is your life. And it is offensive to God to view him as some backpack to be put on on certain days to carry with you in your time of need. He is not a crutch. He is not a backpack. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You serve him. Gathering together should not be a chore, but a joy. Thirdly, we all would do well to repent of viewing ourselves as the king. This sort of thinking leads to all kind of sin, kinds of sinful and selfish thinking and decisions. When you forget that this is God's story and it's all about Christ's glory, when you forget that, oh, you stray so fast. You don't look to be served in your marriage because this life isn't about you. You don't try to avoid sacrificial love because it's not about you. You don't withhold forgiveness because it's not about you. You don't act unfaithfully to your spouse in any way because it's not about you. I don't care how they have treated you. This life is about the glory of Christ. For your children, you aren't primarily concerned about their athletics or their academics because it's not about them. It's about Christ. So you show them Christ. You train them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord because of this. You discipline them even when it is hard and your flesh says, I'm tired and I just sat down and you've got to be kidding me. You're doing it again. You discipline again and again because you want to show them Christ. It's not about you. You don't approach church as some gathering in which you can be served or considering where you can go to church because it has nice amenities, because it's not about you. This is the gathering of the people of Christ. You exist to serve the king. You want to know why you find joylessness frequent in your life? It's because you're trying to serve yourself when you were create, created for God. The church gathers together and we worship and proclaim the glories of Christ. Yes, but we also serve one another. We love one another. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. We greet one another. We confront sin in each other. We confess sin to each other. And we forgive one another all for the glory of Christ because it's not about us. And finally, fourth, we would do well to remember how this story ends. It reminds me of if you've ever caught yourself watching a movie that you really enjoy, right? You may really enjoy a movie, but once you've seen it, you already know the ending, right? And so if you watch it a second time, the moments of conflict start to be drowned out by the hope of what you know is the ending. Right? The conflict as the movie goes on, you start to remind yourself, okay, they're mad at each other now, but I know how the story ends. It seems like this army's going to lose now, but I know how the story ends. It's meant to be a comfort. And I, I, I even realize how absurd it is to say the phrase, remember how the story will end when the ending hasn't happened yet. How can you remember something that hasn't happened because we have the word of God that tells us. We already know. We already know. If you are on God's side, you cannot lose. You cannot lose. The gospel cannot be stomped out. The church of Christ, though persecution may come, will not be destroyed. Rest in that. Christ is coming back. The garden fellowship with Christ 
that they enjoyed Adam and Eve when they walked with God, that fellowship that was lost very early in Genesis will be fully restored. And not just restored, but made even better. Do you know why you can have confidence in that? Because Jesus Christ's blood has purchased you. That means you will never fall away. The garden of heaven or the new heavens and new earth is a garden you can never fall away from because Jesus' work is finished, it's paid in full. Be amazed, believer, at God's story. In just a moment, we won't be having a benediction today. We are going to sing in just a moment the song you've already won. And I want you to sing with so much confidence and so much joy because you've seen the way the story ends, right? And don't get me wrong, I know looking in a room like this, I know there are those who are suffering, who don't see this life as joyful. Rest in what is to come. Rest in this promise that Jesus has already won. Be amazed, for this is God's story and you are in it. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled. We are humble recipients of your grace. You have chosen to have us a part of your story for your glory. What an amazing privilege that is, Lord. I pray that you would help those in this room who have never bowed the knee, that they would bow the knee to the king gladly. That they would turn to you for forgiveness and that they would see life apart from you as meaningless because it is. Help us, Lord. We desperately need you. For the believers in this room, Lord, and I consider myself in this category, we really need to repent of viewing ourselves as the main character. This life isn't about us. It's about you. Help us to submit to that gladly. Help us, Lord, to remember how this story ends. Because in so doing, we receive so much joy and comfort, even in the midst of the harshest of difficulties. You're coming back. Your victory is already certain. Let us celebrate that as we sing this song together. We pray. Amen.